I want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. And just kind of looking around, I can tell some of you are a little bummed out. You, uh, you thought you were going to make your place in history and you got aced out this week. On Wednesday, April 30th, there's a man by the name of David Blaine. And he set the new Guinness Book of World Records for what? For holding your breath. Okay, now, I know that that was been on your list of lifetime accomplishments, and it just got a little harder. In fact, he did it on, no less, on the Oprah Winfrey Show, live, in front of people. He held his breath for, get this, you probably read about this, 17 minutes and 4 seconds. All right? So, some of you might want to try that, see if you can hold your breath through the rest of this sermon. If you do it, we're going to certify it, all right? You'll be it, all right? But he held his breath for 17 minutes and 4 seconds. And he, had, he managed to live about it, live to tell the rest of it. And when he got done, he actually made a, a, a statement saying that, you know, now that I've done that, I'd like to see if I could stay awake the longest, longer than any person ever has. And that's over 11 days. I know we, some of our college students with finals are trying to take that record on there. You could try to do that. But you know what? It would be, it's possible, but it is improbable that you could, Hold your breath for 17 minutes and four seconds, right? Uh, just like you could walk across the United States. It is possible. I know some of us are walking across Texas, at least charting the miles these next couple months, but uh, it's, it's unlikely. It's improbable that you would walk across the United States. It is possible that you will represent the United States on our Olympic team this summer, but it is unlikely, isn't it? It's, it's highly improbable. Jesus said, though, there's one thing that is absolutely impossible for you and I to do. And we looked at it last week. And that is this. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can only be devoted to one. It is impossible. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It is an impossibility. I don't care who's saying that you can do both. You can kind of do your Sunday morning Christian thing and serve God there, sing a few songs, maybe throw a little token money in a collection plate somewhere, and then you can go and live your own life for your own money, for your own wealth for the rest of the week. I know people say that you can do it, There's a lot of people practically say, like, well, that's just my lifestyle. You need to hear from Jesus. You can't do it. You only can have one master. And if money is your master, we become its slaves. Right after Jesus made that statement, he actually encountered some people that had loved money. Like in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, they were lovers of money. And what did they think about Jesus' statement about you can't have two masters? They hated it, and they were scoffing him and mocking him. And then later on, Jesus encounters a man in Luke chapter 18. He is the rich young ruler, and he says, i got a great question. I want life. How do I inherit eternal life? And there was just one major problem. That man had a money problem. Not a shortage of. It's that money had become his God. And Jesus called him head on and said, you know what? One little deal you've got to deal with. You've got to do something about your wealth. Give it all away because it's blinding you. It is holding you on like a chain. In fact, it is your God. Give it away and come follow me. And you know what? That guy, he walked away from Jesus 
because he loved his money more than he loved life itself. And then, of course, in Luke chapter 19, we encountered a man by the name of Zacchaeus. You know him as a wee little man climbing up in a tree, and Jesus called him out and said, come on, I'm, over, I'm eating lunch at your place. Called him by name, by the way. Shows up there, and what happened? Well, that man had a complete reorientation. He realized the sinfulness. He realized that this one Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world put his faith in him. In fact, it was so evident that the man had experienced spiritual transformation that he actually started giving his money away. And if you've got your Bibles open in Luke 19, you can actually see it right there. He says, you know, verse 8, Behold, Lord, he's calling Jesus Lord, Master, in half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He's not saved because he's giving away money. He is giving away money because he's now experienced salvation. And when we experience salvation, a transformation takes place in our life. Everything is different. We have a new purpose, new priorities, new passion, new peace, new perspective, new pursuits. Do you know why? Because when God is our master, we become his stewards. We want to be those who give and use our resources for his purposes. You see, what we do with our money is a revealing indicator of who is really the master of our hearts. And how we handle our money reveals what we believe in our heart. Jesus, if you want to know why he came, I I want you to maybe put a mark or even underline verse 10 in Luke 19. So there's no question that why did he come? Verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is why Jesus Christ has come. If you come here this morning and you're investigating Christianity or spirituality, let me tell you there is life. There is freedom and salvation from your sins in no one but him. That is why he came. That is why he's died on a cross to pay the full penalty for your sin. And that is why he rose again, that you and I can have life and we can be saved from our sins. Now, there was some confusion after Jesus made that statement. There were people that were saying Jesus is going along. He's making his trek through Israel. He's calling people unto himself. He's drawing them to himself. And the thought was that he's going to show up in Jerusalem. He is somehow going to create the revolt and overpower Rome, kick them out of Israel, and he's going to set up his kingdom. That was the messianic hope. There were people that were very much expecting that in a short time, Jesus is going to set himself up as the world ruler. I mean, he's got all the authority to do it. He's got power. He can do miracles. He can take a chief tax collector and have him changed and transformed where he's giving his money away to the poor, which he had never thought of before. This man could do it. And the thought was that Jesus would set up his kingdom immediately in Jerusalem. Well, in order to deal with that misconception, Jesus makes some pretty radical statements. And we're going to look at them in verse 11. You see, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, there's going to be a great gap. That gap is called the church, where God is going to be bringing Gentiles and Jews, whoever, wherever, from every place on the earth, and he's going to draw them to himself through the person of Jesus Christ, whom they have a life-abiding, trusting relationship. But just to eliminate the air of thinking that Jesus was going to immediately set up his kingdom, look at verse 11. When they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. 
He's actually in Jericho. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They thought it's just a matter of days before the kingdom appears. Now, how does Jesus want us to live in light of the fact that there is this gap? In light of the fact that he's going to come back? How are you and I supposed to live? There's a variety of responses to this, but you know what really matters? What does Jesus have to say about how you and I are to live? That's really what matters, and we're going to look at it, and I have a feeling that you're going to find that his response, his answer to that question, is much different than most people are thinking. And it has a lot to do with how you handle his money. In fact, you might want to remember it this way. Our use of his resources matters to God. Now, what we're going to look at here is radical. Uh, There are going to be some times in this auditorium where it's going to be very quiet because let me tell you what's taking place. For some people, when we go through this parable that Jesus gives, why this is going to be a very affirming and confirming message to them as they listen to what Jesus has to say. For other people, Jesus' words are going to be like fine-tuning on one of those dial radios. You know, you kind of got the station, but you got a lot of static a white noise there, and there's going to be some fine-tuning that's going to take place. And for some people, for some people, it's going to be a station change. You were off track. You perhaps have been off track for a long time. Jesus' words are meant to draw you back to right living and right perspective. So how are we to live in the midst of this gap. Well, we're going to take a look at this parable. It's very famous. And what it does is develops the stewardship mindset of those who are saved by grace. And as we go through it, I'm just going to highlight some principles that I think are essential for you and I as we are living in this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. That's why, by the way, he is giving this parable. So how are we to live? Well, let's look at it. Verse 12. So Jesus gives this parable and he said, So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Okay, He's going to go to a faraway place. He's going to receive a kingdom. He's coming back. And so verse 13, And then he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas. A mina is the equivalent of a hundred days' wages. So whatever you're making, take three and one-third months of that. That's what a mina is. Okay? It, he's, he gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So he's got these ten slaves. He gives each one a mina. He says, I want you to do business with this until I come back. I'm coming back. I want you to get busy and go to work with this. And so that was the plan. Now, this would not be uncommon. Wealthy landowners, they had servants that actually did trade with their money. And when they talk about banks, really they're talking about money tables. All money matters were generally conducted over tables. And you could go and you could take money. You could give it to a guy working a money table. He could give you some interest. He would go and return to make other investments. There was also just the buying and trading of goods. Some guy comes into town. He's got goods. You buy them. You can take that as goods. You could sell them for a profit in your market. Or you can carry them to a little more remote places, perhaps make a lot more money on that. This is what the master, the nobleman says. Come here, boys. I'm going to give you something. And he's given them. This is a sizable chunk of change. I mean, if somebody gave you, a, you know, three months worth of wages, you'd be like, whoa, 
He says, just go do business with this until I come back. Let me give you the first principle that I want to highlight. Serving Christ through stewardship is part of his divine design. This is how God has always desired it would be. Stewardship isn't something like, oh, we really don't want to talk about that and talk about money. Actually, Jesus says, this is the way it is. You think I'm going to set up my kingdom? There's going to be a gap. What you need to know is how to handle yourself in this period of time called the church. It is called stewardship. It is when you manage another person's resources. Let me tell you, Jesus doesn't want us loving our money. What does he want? He wants us living as good stewards of our money. Let me give you a scripture on that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You don't need to love it. You don't need to cling to it. I am with you. I'll never desert you. I'll never forsake you. I am the good master. Just don't love money because it is a cruel master. It'll take you places and a direction and do things to your character that you never hoped would ever happen. Now, let me give you another principle that we can find here as initial part of this parable. The Lord owns it all. All that there is, all that I am, all that I have. The key phrase there in verse 13 is he says, he, he gave them. Okay, it's he called his ten slaves and he gave them ten minas. This is an, a continual theme throughout the Bible. And let me tell you why I think it's, it's continually emphasized. It's because we miss it and God never intended for us to miss it. Let me just give you just a sampling of verses that speak the fact that God owns it all. Like, for instance, Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Did he miss anything? Can you think of anything? I pretty much covers it all. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Even your little parcel where you got your mobile home park. All it contains. The world and those who dwell on it. Here's a couple others. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Now, there's not a lot of hills in Texas, but okay, he owns all those, all right? The, he, all of those, they're his. And he says, goes on, I, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field, it's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. Well, what about the money, like the silver and gold? Haggai 2.8. What does God have to say? Don't miss this. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And the point is this. God is the universal owner. He owns all of it. And with that overriding truth, let me tell you, you are just a manager. You're a steward. You only have a temporary possession of things that really do not belong to you. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a parent who has a car and a kid. And what does that kid want when they get about age 16 or so? Well, they like to be in that car, right? 
And they, they have different ways of asking and getting really excellent behavior right around the age of 16, you know, for a few months there is stellar. Why? Because they want the privilege and they would like the responsibility of being able to drive that car. Isn't that how it works? Now, if you ask the teenager, who owns the car? Well, they're like, oh, well, my mom does or my dad does. I mean, do you own the car? Well, not really, not exactly. I'm in the family, but I, no, I don't own the car. So your parents own the car, right, and you'd like to drive it. Right, that's right. You see, the parents, they have, they have rights. They have the right to the car, and they can say, you can drive it, and they say, you know what, I'm really not happy with how you've been driving the car. This new scratch here, I'm not really impressed with that. How you hit the neighbor's car yesterday, I'm not happy with that. You're not driving for a while. I'm taking the keys back. And the parent has every right to do that, right? Why? Because they own the car. Let me tell you something. God owns it all. He owns all the resources. What did he miss? He told you over and over again, everything that you see, God owns it. And so we own nothing. All we have, we have responsibilities. He's got all the rights. And with God owning it, let me tell you this, that everything that you have, Every decision you make with your money and your resources is actually a spiritual decision. That's true in your giving, but that's true when you buy a ball uh, ticket to a ball game. That's true with how you pay your taxes, with your grocery money. Every decision is actually a spiritual decision because you are a steward. You are a temporary manager of God's resources. He owns it all, and that actually also means he actually determines how much you will have because he owns it all. So... Do this. Next time you're mowing your yard or you're kind of walking around your property or you're going to visit your cows or whatever you do, next time I want you to look at your property and maybe your house and your car or you came by horse today. I don't know. I want you to look at it and I want you to think this way. That's God's car, his house, his land, his cattle, his horse. It actually belongs to him. You, it doesn't belong to you. Think of the dirt. Think how long the dirt's been there. Do you really think you own the dirt? Even if you have a title to it, that dirt isn't yours. It's just temporary. You can't take it with you. It really doesn't belong to you. And, you know, when we think this way, it gives us a great deal of freedom when we can actually realize that God has given it all and we're merely stewards of his property. Let me also highlight something else that you need to know. It's found in verse 14. It's another principle. Do not be alarmed or deterred by those who reject allegiance to Christ. Verse 14, listen to Jesus' parable. But his citizens, whose citizens? The noblemen's citizens, they hated him. So they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Not smart. Okay, but that's, that was their attitude. Now, there's something going on here. Uh, now, the Jews actually did something like this. About 30 years prior, when Herod the Great died, he set his son Archelaus up and to be the king of Judea. And he was, not only was he really a terrible ruler, he had created a major bloodbath on, on a Passover right after he took over, killed 3,000 Jews. The Jews hated this guy for very good reason. He was incompetent. He was a terrible ruler. But in order for Archelaus to actually receive his right to rule, he had to show up at Rome, and he would receive it from the actual emperor. Well, he shows up, but lo and behold, 
the Jews sent a delegation saying, uh-uh, we hate this guy. They sent a whole uh, delegation to show up there, and they made their big complaint, and they actually got their title removed from king, and he had to settle for a lesser title. And the Rome, Roman actually found, Rome, Rome actually found out that he was pretty incompetent, and they replaced him, and they did it multiple times. Now, what the Jews did, in a physical sense, they are just about ready to do in a spiritual one. Jesus is really the antithesis of Archelaus. He is the absolute, perfect, righteous, gracious, just master. And they don't want anything to do with him. Verse 14 is indicative of how they will treat Jesus. And it is continues today. There are many people who reject him and his lordship over all things. They don't like him. They'll mock him. They will write about him. They'll write books about hating God and all that sort of thing and the God delusion. Why? They hate Jesus Christ and his lordship. They refuse it. It's all right. It's been around for a long time. Jesus even tells us in this parable, it's going to happen. Don't let that throw you off. You stay on track. You remember who is the master, who all this stuff belongs to, and that he's coming back. Let me uh, give you a fourth principle. This is one that you and I probably do not think of enough. And that is this. One day... We will be asked, what did you do with what you had? Look at verse 15. Remember the master said, I'm coming back. Well, he does. Verse 15. And when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. He told them that was going to take place. And lo and behold, he shows up and he wants to know, what did you do with what I had? Friends, you need to know that's going to happen. There is going to be a time either Christ is going to return and he is going to snatch us away, referred to as the rapture, like you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, or you are going to die. At that moment, your stewardship record freezes. It's done. While you're alive, you're a steward of his resources. But he's returning or you're going to come meet him through death, and your stewardship record freezes at that point. And he's going to ask you and I this question, what did you do with what you had? That will be the question, Christian. What did you do with what you had? Randy Elkhorn talks about a man who paid a visit to a caretaker who cared for a very large estate of a very wealthy man, and this this guy, this caretaker had been taking care of this estate for 25 years. And in that whole period of 25 years, guess how frequently the estate owner showed up? Twice. Twice he'd made a visit. He went, checked it out, took a look around. He left. You know, I'll be back, you know, maybe another 10, 12 years. He didn't say when he's coming back. He just left the caretaker in charge. Well, this guy, visitor, came and saw this and this caretaker was meticulous. I mean, he was doing everything. I mean, it was everything that needed to be taken care of. Flowers, water, doors, hinges. It was everything was in place. He was ready to go. And so the visitor, you know, knowing the history of the caretaker, I mean, the history of the landowner, how frequently or infrequently he showed up, he asked him this question. Well, I've got a question for you here. So when did you expect the estate owner to return? And immediately, this is what the caretaker said. Why today, of course. And I want you to know something. That is how you and I are to live. When is Christ coming back? 
I don't know, but it could be today. The world mocks and says, oh, you know, he says he's coming back, but he ain't showed up in a long, long time. You think he's going to come? He just said, be ready. Right? That's what he told us. You know, we're to be like a private. A private never knows when barrack inspections are going to occur. They just need to be ready. It is a sorry situation if like, oh, I didn't expect an inspection right now. I was playing my Monopoly game. No, it's not going to work. You were told you need to be in top shape at all times. No excuses. You need to know something, Christian. He's going to come back and one day all of us are going to have to answer the question, what did you do with what you had? And in case you think like this is going to be a group question, you know, like he's going to ask, like you're all a fellowship Bible church, we're all going to be lumped together, and he's going to ask all of us, like, what did you do? Uh-uh. It's going to be individual. For instance, uh, the servant's efforts are not going to be muddled with the incompetence of others. Neither will another's failures have any sort of detrimental effect to the successes of others. It's not going to be like, whew, I'm so glad I'm a part of Fellowship Bible Church because there's some people that really got the stewardship thing down. And I don't, but I'm glad I'm a part of the body. Uh, guess what? It's going to be an individual deal. Get ready. The question is going to come. Let me give you another principle. Stewardship requires a plan, action, and faith. So the master shows up. He wants to know, verse 15, what kind of business has been done while I've been gone? What did you do? Well, verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Whoa. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Whoa. That's amazing. Ten cities. And then this, the second one came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Let me tell you about some of these guys that Jesus is addressing. They had what is called a plan. You know, a failure to plan is a plan to fail. If you have no plan on what you're doing with your resources, then let me tell you, you are planning to fail. This is going to be a sorry situation when Christ says, what did you do with what I gave you? Oh, well, I didn't quite get around to a plan. No one told me. Guess what? Today, I'm telling you. He is telling you, you, gotta, you have to have some sort of plan of what you're going to do. You have to, first of all, know what you have, like in terms of income, savings, investments, you also have to have understand how you're going to utilize what you have in terms of long-term and short-term needs and expenses that you have. You've got to have an idea, how am I going to be able to account for, I've got these expenses short-term, long-term expenses, I'm going to have these. Are you in a position, do you have a plan to meet those? And not only, it's, your money is not given strictly for your living expenses, it is also given for your giving investments. The master intends that what he gives you, there is a return yield where you're giving back to him, furthering and forwarding his work on this earth. And so you have to ask yourself this question. Does my giving reflect my faith in him? What, what, what you give to the Lord on a regular basis, does it reflect your faith in him? That's why he's given you resources to take care of your needs for you and your family. Short term, long term expenses. 
but also for the forwarding and furthering of his work. And it will take a plan. In fact, it'll take some thinking. It'll take resources. You're going to have to seek out some wise counsel. You're going to have to be a strategic thinker. Let me tell you, if, if so, just think about this. Like, let's say your boss gave you $100. And he said, I want you to go and make some good investments with this because I'm going to ask for it a little bit later and we're going to need to do something pretty significant with it. How many of you think like your boss would be really impressed if you said, well, I went to Vegas with it, man, and I had a really good time. He would go, wrong answer. That does not work. You don't gamble with my money. I told you to invest it. I said, told you to put it to work. And you put it to Vegas? Something's wrong here. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a, a strategy of what is it going to do to not only meet my expenses, but to make giving investments on a regular basis. You've got to also be intentional. Let me tell you, most Americans spend more time planning their vacations than they do what they're going to do with their money. I mean, you know, they're going through, like, oh, oh yeah, Matt David. And they'll spend hours and hours and hours. But when you ask, well, what is your stewardship strategy? My, my what? The steward? Uh, isn't that a campaign at the church? I, I don't really have that. Friends, that reflects the poor stewardship. You haven't thought a lot about If you can tell me what you're doing with your vacation in every detail, like every popsicle stop, but you have no idea what you're doing with your finances, something's not right. And the master would be very concerned about that. You've got to develop a strategy. That means you might need to talk to a financial advisor, or you could talk to someone in our church that has a very good handle of finances. We have lots of people like that at Fellowship. You could read some excellent books. You could take a few classes, but you've got to have a plan. And second of all, then you've got to have to take action. You actually have to take the initiative. You have to actually step forward and get involved. Now, I know that you get, there's like all this worldly advice and it's just coming at you everywhere and it's like the next economic earthquake is just tomorrow and you don't even hardly know what to do and what it can have like a paralyzing effect on people's lives. But you actually have to take the initiative. You have to take some steps. You have to put your plan into action. That's what good stewardship requires. It requires a plan. It requires that you actually follow your plan. You have to say no to things that you can't afford so you can live within your means. You have to put your, you have to move forward with your plan, and it also requires faith. It is faith that God is going to provide the greater reward. He is going to provide that possibly in this life, but let me assure you, Christian, He's going to provide the greater reward and the life to come. Absolutely. You and I will be astounded at the presence of where we're going. And he says, I want you to be a good steward now on this little place called Earth. Because just wait till you see where you're going. Let me also highlight one other principle. Future reward is based on present faithfulness. Remember what it was? Okay, here's your mina. The guy goes, he turns around, he makes ten minas more. And he says, Whoa, good job. Guess what? I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. Why would the nobleman do that? Anybody got a wild idea? I'll tell you why. Because that guy proved faithful with a little. Certainly he could be faithful with much. Everything you've got and I've got right now, it's little compared to what we could have. But you've got to prove to be faithful what you do have. If you're not faithful what you do have right now, why do you think God's going to give you more? Uh, you're not, you don't even have a stewardship plan. Jesus said, you were faithful in a very little thing. Verse 17. 
you're to be an authority over ten cities. That, there's like no comprehension. There's like a third of your salary. Now you're in charge of ten cities. I mean, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And that's what's going to happen. I believe that this, this parable teaches us that if we could be faithful with what we've got now, in the future, when we reign with Christ, it will equate to much greater responsibilities if we can have present faithfulness. Let me give you just a couple more principles that are highlighted from this parable. This next one. Wealth, the wealth that you have, is a tool, it is a testimony, and it is a test. See, the wealth that you have, it is a tool to provide for your expenses, short-term, long-term expenses, and it is also a tool to provide for your financing of the kingdom of, of God's kingdom work. That's why he's given you resources. It is a tool to provide for you. Why do you have money? You have money so, because God is providing for you so you can provide for yourself and for your family. Let me also tell you, though, your wealth is a testimony. It is a testimony about what you really believe about God. You know, you and I are called to be what? Salt and light. We are salt, we are light, and there's a lifestyle that goes with that. And what is Jesus emphasizing in this parable? There is a financial lifestyle, a stewardship lifestyle that goes with that, the idea that our wealth is a testimony. Because we know Christ, there is a testimony that comes with that. Lots of people actually find that money is their security, but one day they'll be very disappointed. Money does not mean security. Let me give you a, a a verse you can write down. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. Some people think that security for their kids means that they got a pretty healthy investment portfolio. No. Proverbs 14, verse 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. You know what our testimony is? Our testimony is that our faith isn't in our money. Our faith is in our God. And because our faith is in our God, is in our God, it's reflected on what we do with our money, not the other way around. Our faith is not in our finances. It is in God. And when you and I live like this, it is a testimony to the world that something transformational has happened. Something like happened to Zacchaeus. There is a new Lord of your heart, and it's no longer wealth. Wealth also, not only is a tool, it's a testimony. Wealth is a test. This life, you might want to see it as as just a test for what is to come. Are you passing? Are you faithful? Are you fruitful? See, this, in the master's absence, this gives us an opportunity to show faithfulness, show trust in the living God. The question isn't how much money you have. The question is, what are you doing with the money that you've been given? It's a test. Let me give you a little history. 1815, Napoleon. Now, Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Okay, and he was defeated by Duke Wellington. And when Duke Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, actually defeated Napoleon, that pretty much ended things for Napoleon's French uh, Empire movement. Okay, he had actually suffered a few defeats. He thought he could beat the British there, but he met with defeat. And of course, you know the rest of the story. Uh, that after that, people actually England moved into France to kind of took over and got things straightened away. Now there is the latest biographer of the Duke of Wellington, is a guy by the name of Godfrey Davis. And he has made a claim that he has a serious advantage over all other biographers of the Duke of Wellington. And that is because he actually was able to find and come up with an old account ledger of the Duke of Wellington. 
And according to his statements, he says, you know, that gives us a far better clue to what the Duke thought was really important, much more important than reading his letters or his speeches. You want to know what's really important to the Duke of Wellington? You've got to know what his ledgers say, because his money went to what he really thought was most important. Well, he thinks that makes for a better biography. Let me ask you, if we just had your financial records, your checkbook, your tax returns, what kind of story would we write about you? What would your story reveal? Your checkbook, my checkbook, that actually is a very good indicator of what we truly believe and what is in our heart. You know why? Because our wealth, it's a test. Let me give you one final principle. And this is really the most sobering. Stewardship failure has sobering implications. There were 10 slaves that were given money. We looked at a couple of them, but look at verse 20. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept and put away in a handkerchief. Uh, You need to know something here. What did the master say I want you to do? Anybody remember? Long-term memory. What did he say? I want you to go and put my money to work until I come back, right? Make something of it. What did this guy do? He put it in a handkerchief. This was, by the way, considered actually one of the worst things you could do with your money. This was, this was foolish. This was considered a terrible, irresponsible way of handling money. He didn't put it where he could invest it. He put it in a handkerchief. And furthermore, the guy had a very wrong concept of God. Verse 21, for I was afraid of you. And because you are an exacting man and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. You know what I did? I just kind of put it in my handkerchief. Let me give you these words by Dr. A.W. Tozer. Quote, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. You have a wrong view of God. You probably have a wrong view of your money. This this guy said, well, you know, I I thought you were like this. And so I just put it in my little handkerchief. And what it shows is that this guy never really thought that the master would come back. If you put it on the money table, money changer's table, well, that would have had to done in his master's name. Maybe he thought the master really wasn't going to come back. And maybe if I just kind of keep it in my little handkerchief and he just never shows up, it just becomes mine and I own it. Now, I want you to see this, if you can bear with it. Verse 22, the nobleman said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Is that really what you thought of me? In fact, if you really thought I was an exacting man, that really would have been a great impetus for you to get busy. If you really thought that about me, I don't think that's the case. Verse 23, then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Well, this will never work. You are an unfaithful steward. I gave you money, my money. I gave you clear direction. Furthermore, you just had to look at some of your compadres and see how they were doing. And that they were investing and making the most of their money. And they were working hard and they were not lazy. I'm not sure what went on here, but I'm going to have to make some changes. And so he does. Verse 24. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Verse 25. And they said, Master, well, he has ten minas already and now you put him in charge of ten cities. 
And I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say in this parable. I tell you that to everyone who has more, has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who send a little contingent and say, we're not interested in you being our master. They didn't want me to reign over them, verse 27. Bring them here and slay them in my presence. If you are an enemy of Christ, the Bible's real clear. It is a harsh, eternal ending, which you do not need to face if you'll simply put your faith in him. But if you are a Christian, you are also a steward. They are to be synonyms, not antonyms. If you are a Christian, you are to be a steward. If you are a Christian, but you are a really poor steward, and you are actually more like this, this guy who, like, well, I just kind of hit it, hit it in my handkerchief. Notice in this parable that Jesus gives, he doesn't lose his life or his eternal life. He just loses the opportunity for eternal privileges. If you're an unfaithful servant and steward of your money, but you truly believe in Christ, you will be with him forever. That is the promise of Jesus Christ, if your faith is truly in him. But your opportunity for privilege and future responsibilities, why, according to this parable, they are severely jeopardized. In fact, they will not actually have fruition. All that might be will not be because you simply did not either believe the king would return and he'd ask you, what did you do with what you had? If you fail, if you fail to live within your means, if you fail to be a good steward, if you really don't believe you're going to be held accountable for what you've received, this parable is meant to be a station change. I would not leave here without a plan to follow what the Lord has said. Because what does he expect of us? That we're good stewards. If I were saying, guess what? After church today, I got a little surprise for everybody. We're going scuba diving. And I bring up the scuba diving instructor and I bring over here and I, like, pay attention to this guy. He's going to tell you what to do. Most of us have never done this. I bet all of you'd be like, oh, okay, now what happens now? And I put the mask on and, and I go underwater and then what am I, how am I breathing? I'm really curious. And you would be like, you'd be taking notes, right? And you'd be like, wait, could go over that point one more. I don't want to miss it because I don't want to be like 10,000 feet underneath there or whatever and, and not know what, how to breathe or something or turn on my oxygen tank or something. Let me tell you something. You're not going scuba diving, but you're in the water. And you know what the acronym scuba can stand for? Stewards coming under biblical authority. God has taken us into the water and he has told us how we're to function. And just like you pay attention to that instructor, friends, pay attention to the instructor and his instruction. And it's given to you in his word. What you and I need is perspective. All belongs to God. I belong to him. And I am his steward if I know Christ. Because our use of his resources matters to God. We also are going to need a plan how to make the most of the financial resources that you and I have. And this is what I want to do. I want to challenge all of us, each of us, as a part of Fellowship Bible Church, to make May the month that we make sure our house is in order and we are stepping up to the plate as stewards. Let me give you some ideas. First of all, you have resources for your living expenses and your giving investments. If you do not have a stewardship plan or you feel like, you know, it's time to kind of think things over again, 
uh, you want to talk to a financial advisor, I would encourage you to read a good book. And you say, well, would you give me an idea? Let me give you just three. There's lots of good ones. But Ron Blue has one called The New Money Master. The New, excuse me, Master of Your Money. Master Your Money. That's a good one. Randy Elkhorn has Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Or Dave Ramsey. You might have even heard this guy on the radio. He has a book called Total Money Makeover. But you would like to read a good book because you need to be a good steward. In fact, you'd probably do well like at least once a year, once every couple of years to make sure that you're reading something or talking to someone that will help you be a good steward. If you are saying, boy, I need help, could I talk to someone in the church? Send us an email. We'll get you connected. Or you could take a class. But you've got to have a plan, but it can't stop at the plan. You've got to put it into action. And this is the month to do it. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young, how little you have or how much. The question is, will you be faithful? In fact, we've even given in your notes there, there is a stewardship self-evaluation. Those are questions just meant for you to go over. But the vision of our church is that we would be a church surrendered to God, that we would be seeking to make the most of the resources he has, that we've been given for his glory because we want to serve him with all that we have. When we talk about, boy, I sure hope at the end of my life that God could say, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, could that be a reality? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is what God desires to say to each of us. And you know what? He wants it more than even you do. So friends, our use of his resources, it matters to God. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your clear instruction in, this, in your word and what a critical subject. What are we to be doing, Lord, between the first and the second coming of your son? My Lord, it's very clear you spelled it out in your word. And you put it right in front of us, each of us as individuals and as the body of Christ here at Fellowship Bible Church. So, Lord, have your will and your way in our church. May we be everything that you've desired and you've intended. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words and shape our convictions, make us a people not only with a plan, not only with perspective, but a people that put it into action according to your will and for your glory. For there are those who are here who have never put their faith in your son, would they do so now and just turn from their sin and put their trust in him? For all of us, Lord, I pray that whether we need a station change or just a fine tuning or this is a major confirmation, Lord, be praised. Accomplish your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.